We're going to study tonight several tshuvas and other sources, not all about exactly the same question, but all about the, a, a general theme. And that is the obligations, various obligations of a husband toward his wife, certain conjugal obligations, certain financial conjugal obligations that he has. In particular, we're going to discuss two uh, interesting scenarios pertaining to two of his many obligations. One of his obligations is to bury her. If she dies while they are married, he's he's obligated, he's responsible for her funeral. Another obligation is to redeem her. If she's captured by bandits, by kidnappers, or by governments, he's obligated to pay to get her out of captivity. So we're going to discuss two scenarios, one in each of these uh, obligations. Regarding burial, we're going to discuss a case of a woman who was buried and then was disinterred by grave robbers, by tomb raiders. Does he have to pay for a second burial? And regarding the obligation to redeem her, we're going to discuss a question of is he obligated to redeem her when it is her fault that she has been captured. She was reckless, she engaged in criminal conduct, it's her fault that she was captured, does she still have the right to demand that he pay for her redemption? No real conceptual connection between these two, except that they both pertain to his financial conjugal obligations, but they're both interesting scenarios, and we'll, we'll spend a few minutes on each of these. Regarding the first question, the woman who was disinterred, so this is a tshuva in the Tashbats, Rabbi Shimon ben Semach Duran, the great North African posik from about six centuries ago, seven centuries ago. His question was, Someone arranged properly for the burial of his wife. People who disturbed tombs, tomb raiders, they removed her from her grave, and they they stripped her, they left her body uh, disgracefully, naked on the ground. Does he have to pay for a second set of takrichim to, to, to rebury her properly? What these grave robbers were about is unclear. Historically, grave robbers and body snatchers did this for one of two reasons, either because there were valuables in the tombs, all the tomb raiders of uh, ancient Egypt, and so on, were, were, were raiding tombs, because of the valuables, gold and silver and all kinds of precious artifacts that were down there and, uh, and so on. Um, more recently, in the 18th century, the 19th century, grave robbing, what grave robbing was a big business because they needed cadavers for anatomy lessons, for medical schools. The, the, it, it was very, there were very limited opportunities to get cadavers for study. They used convicted and executed criminals. There weren't quite enough of those. With all the bloodthirstiness of European governments, there weren't quite enough uh, executed criminals to satisfy the needs of the medical schools and the physicians. So a very lively trade, uh, a very lively trade in grave robbing, grave robbing developed. Dickens in A Tale of Two Cities has a major subplot about this, about a resurrectionist, they used to call them, people who would go about uh, disturbing tombs and removing the dead and selling the cadavers to uh, professional men, to physicians who didn't ask too many questions about the provenance of the bodies. That was apparently not the case here in the time of the Radvat, in the time of the Tashbats. It says they left the body here, they just took the Takrichim. 
Sounds like they were after the, the takrichim. Not sure why. Takrichim, generally in Judaism, we use very cheap takrichim. Today we use very simple, very simple, very, uh, very cheap takrichim. There was a time in the Talmudic period where they used to use expensive takrichim until it became such a burden on the families that they made a takana to use cheap takrichim. But for a very long time, takrichim have been cheap. Why it was worth anybody's trouble to dig up a, uh, to dig up a mace in order to steal the takrichim is beyond me. But, um, but it's, uh, it's, it's a maisa. This is what happened. That uh, we can't ask questions on stories. This is what happened. These are the facts. So the, there's an old Yiddish expression to that effect, which is escaping me at the moment. Um, we, we don't ask questions on stories. So this is what happened. And the question was: Is the husband obligated to redeem her to, to bury her a second time? Says the Tashbats. Yes. So Simcha suggesting maybe that was a time where they did use expensive takrichim. I don't. I'm, I, I'm not an expert in the history of burial. I don't think that that Jews ever really, for quite a long time, used expensive takrichim. I'm not sure. Anyway, this is uh, th- this is what happened. The question was: Can the husband be obligated to bury her a second time to rebury her? Says the Tashbats. His correspondent, the, the rabbi, the, the, the person who posed the question to him, thought the husband was not chayev. Nira l'cha she'en chayev l'kavre That the, his correspondent thought, nope, one time and he's done. Husband only has to bury her once. Once he did so, he's done. He has no further obligation. And the source for such an idea is because regarding the other obligation we're discussing tonight of the husband, the obligation to redeem her if she's captured, there it says explicitly that in, that the, in the Talmud it says that if she's captured a second time, he doesn't have to pay for a second redemption. He has the option the second time of saying he can simply divorce her, pay her ksuva, and say, I'm washing my hands of you. This is just too much. You take care of redeeming yourself. That's his right when it comes to, uh, when it comes to redeeming her. It doesn't sound very, very loyal or romantic for him to take advantage of that just saying, uh, you know, forget it, I'm done with you, here's your ksuva, and have a nice life. But the, he, he does have the technical right to do that. We always point out, especially in Avon Ezer, especially in the halachas of husband and wives, not everything the halacha allows you to do, it, does the halacha recommend that you do, not everything is, is the, noble, the noble thing to do, the high road, but your, your legal rights don't always uh, align perfectly with uh, ideal noble conduct. He has the right to do that. He has the right to divorce her, pay her ksuva, and say, I'm done. So the Tashbatsa's correspondent said that the, the same thing is true for Kfura. He buries her the first time. If she needs a second burial, which is not the most common thing in the world, but if she needs a second burial, he can say, I'm done, I'm finished. The, that, 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 not my responsibility anymore. Says the Tashbats, I do not agree. I think the husband is indeed responsible to reinter her, he is indeed responsible for burying her a second time and indefinitely to keep burying her again and again until she stays buried. Says the Tashbats, why? So he makes a number of arguments explaining why he thinks the obligation to bury her is uh, ongoing, that as long as she's not buried, he has to bury her again, even if she was buried previously. And he makes a number of arguments why that is so, and he distinguishes between this and the case of redeeming her from captivity which is an explicit Gemara that you only have to do that one time. If you want, you can pay her the ksuva and wash your hands of her after the first time. Says the, so the first argument that Tashbats makes is that in general, people who don't inherit the woman don't have an obligation to bury her. 
the, her relatives, for example, can say, if she has a husband, they can say, why should we bury her? She has a husband, let him bury her. The husband inherits her, not us. That's one of the signature halachas of Yerusha. A husband inherits his wife, no other heirs inherit if she has a husband. And in halacha, inheritance is, is basically all or nothing, that relatives of a given, of a given relationship have, who have precedence over other, other relatives get everything, and the more distant relatives get nothing. If there are sons, the sons get everything, daughters get nothing. If there, are, if there are no sons but daughters, the daughters get everything, and her uncles and father gets nothing. If there are no, no surviving issue, then the, her father get, and no husband, the father gets everything, and nobody else gets anything. Halacha generally picks the closest relative and says that relative, or all, all relatives on the same level, share the Yerusha, and more distant relatives get nothing. So if she has a husband, the husband inherits her, gets, gets all her property, and other relatives get nothing, so they can say it's not our responsibility to bury her, he says. Therefore, he says, in the, in the case of a woman who needs a second burial, she was, uh, the grave robbers left her body unburied. Who's going to bury her, he says. The, the relative's not going to bury her, the husband's not going to bury her, so if the husband's not going to bury her, who should bury her? The community should bury her, he says. That, that's not right. She has a husband. So it makes sense, he says, since the husband had to bury her the first time, since someone has to bury her the second time, it's not going to be her relatives, it makes sense that it should be the husband and not, uh, not, uh, not force the community to foot the cost for her second burial. I'm not sure why that's such a compelling argument. Maybe it is a community. Maybe the husband only has a chiv to do it one time. After that, it's, it's like any other uh, indigent person who the community has to bury. Okay, Tashpatz feels that's not Mistaver. He says that the he says that someone has to bury her, and the husband is the most logical candidate. That's his first argument. What about the parallel to Nishbase? The Tashpat the Tashpatz's correspondent had said that the that the Gemara says explicitly that when it comes to redeeming a woman, then once she's been redeemed once, the husband can say, I'm done. So why can't you say the same thing here? Says the Tashpatz, no, that's different. Because over there, in the case of Nishbeis, the husband is saying, you're not my wife, I'm divorcing you, here's your ksuva, I've paid off all my financial obligations to you, I'm not inheriting you, once he divorces her, he no longer inherits her, if she, if she subsequently dies. So in such a case, where the husband completely severs any ties he has, he completely relinquishes all rights that he has, he says he's not being Yerishur, and he pays her ksuva, and her, her relatives will, 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 will inherit her, and they can bury her. So in, Achinam, then, then, then in, in that case, they, they can inherit her, they can redeem her, they, they can be responsible for her, because he's completely cut all ties, he's completely cut all ties with, uh, he completely cut all ties with, with her. However, in our case, as long as the husband's inheriting her, it's his responsibility. It's his responsibility to bury her even a second time. Unless he completely, uh, unless he suggests, if he completely relinquishes his right to inherit her, and he says here that, that I, 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 I waive the inheritance in favor of, the, of her relatives, then, then they can keep her estate and they can bury her as well. But in general, as long as he wants the privileges of a husband, he wants to inherit her, it will be his responsibility to bury her. That's why it's different from Nishpeh. Nishpeh, he's divorcing her. He can divorce her and say, now, 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 now fend for yourself. Here he's not divorcing her, she's, she's dead, and as long as he wants to be Yerishur, he says, uh, he, he says he has to, uh, he says, as long as, long as he wants to be Yerishur, it stands to reason he has to bury her. Furthermore, he says, for another reason he can't do that. He says, even if the, if the woman would still be alive, he can say, he can say, uh, he can say that, he can say that, that I wash my hands of you, and that here's your ksuva, and, and, and take care of yourself. 
but he says he can't, he can't force her relatives to, to take care of her. He says the, he has no right to say, the relatives can say, why should we do it? Uh, we, we're not, you know, the responsibility is on you, the husband. The woman, he can say, you're your own person, take care of yourself. Uh, you're an adult, take care of yourself. He has no right to foist responsibility for her onto her relatives. And again, the community apparently certainly can't foist responsibility for her onto the community as long as he's available. So it makes sense that if she's out of the picture, that, 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 that as, long as, as, long, as long as she's not, uh, she's not capable of taking care of herself, she's dead, it makes sense again that he has no option of saying, I'm washing my hands of you. She's helpless, so he has to do it. Furthermore, he's... Yes? So the reason the reason we're having this discussion is because yes, if, uh, burying a mace is very important. Mace mitzvah is is a tremendous mitzvah, and as you said, even Kohanim are matame, even Kohen Gadol is matame, and so on. That's all true. But the question is, why him? He could say, let the community do it. It's a question of money. We're we're, we're all available here. What's required here is money. So why me? Go go to the Chevra Kadisha, make an appeal for Rinshul. Why me more than anybody else? It's true. It's, it's a pressing need. It's very very important. But why are you turning to me? There's lots of people who could do it. Am I the richest person in town? Not necessarily. Am I the person who, uh, who, who has the most... I'm not a member of the Hebrew Kaddisha. So why me? If nobody else can do it, yes, I have to do it. Maybe you should do it. I mean, you're the one asking, maybe the rabbi should do it. Maybe the, maybe the president of the shul should do it. I don't know. The question is, why me? Yes, we were married. But I think it would be a push to have this kind of conversation. Why me? Why not me? I mean, it's, it's so ridiculous. Um, okay, I don't know what to say. The, the point is, uh, the, the, I agree that it, this, this, this doesn't sound like the most uh, noble and, uh, and, 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 and selfless conduct, but you know, your legal rights are your legal rights. If, they, if it's not your chiv, then you can, you can demand that someone else take care of her. Everyone should take care of her. People should, people should pay for her burial. I, I, I'm, I'm sure you would not do this, and hopefully most of us would not, uh, would not do this, but uh, at some point, the people couldn't afford it. It was expensive, I guess. At some point, this is the question whether he has the halachic right to say this or not. So the Tashbat says he does not, and he makes all these arguments why, even as a matter of strict technical halacha, besides morality and decency maybe, but even as a matter of technical halacha, he has no right to say this. He says, uh, he says, he, he, he says, he, he brings other arguments. He says, furthermore, he says, the, he makes one, one last very interesting argument. He says that, uh, another very interesting argument, he says that when the Gemara says when it comes to redeeming her, he can wash his hands of her, that's because he can divorce her. Once he divorces her, she's no longer married to him. If, he's no longer, if she's no longer married, then, then, then he has no further obligation to redeem her. That makes sense. He says, this woman is dead. So even though we say, uh, to, when you marry, the, not we say, the Christians say, the Americans say, till death do us part, it's actually just the opposite, the, the Tashbat says. As long as you're married, you can actually sever the bond by divorce. Once she's dead, you're considered married past death as well. Zos Ishto, he says, Mesa i efsher legar sha'od, you can't divorce a dead woman. La'olam hikruya ishto, ad she'ichyu ha'mesim. Until God uh, revives the dead, tchies ha'mesim, she's your wife. And you're stuck with her, you're stuck with her, your responsibilities toward her, until tchies ha'mesim. So, 
not till death do us part. Uh, death does not part them. De- they're still, obviously, they're not married in the sense of, uh, in other senses, you know, if a woman's husband dies, she's allowed to remarry. Obviously, and if a man's wife dies, he's allowed to remarry. They're, they're, obviously, they're not married in the full sense of the word, but in a, in, in a financial responsibility sense, death does not part them. She is called his wife until Tchiesa Mason. I, was, I, I, I came across an article. There's a lively discussion in the Achronim whether after Tchiesa Mason, people are still considered married. If, the, if, 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 if someone comes back to life, they talk about Elio Navi, where he disappeared and came back, whether people are still considered married when the husband is no longer around in the physical world. If he comes back afterward, at Tchiesa Mason, more like Elio Navi. So the Chum discuss various scenarios like this. Someone brings this Tashbat. The Tashbat says... Death does not completely sever the... the ma- and obviously, it's, it's hard to bring a riot from this, because obviously they're not considered married while one of them is dead. Obviously, they're, they're not married. They're, there's no adultery for the, for the woman after her husband died. She's allowed to remarry. Obviously, we don't mean she's literally, they're literally married, but with, with, at least with respect to certain financial obligations, in a certain sense, the Red Vaz says, a widow is more considered still married than a divorcee. As a divorcee, he consciously and absolutely severed the relationship between them. When it comes to a widower, or maybe a widow would be the same thing, they're still considered married if they died while the marriage was intact. In a certain sense, at least with regard to these financial obligations, the marriage is considered to have survived to some extent, and therefore he has no option of saying, I'm washing my hands of you, he still has responsibility to bury her and rebury her, whatever it takes. Yes? Um, did you say that you're still married, and let's say you're married to... Ma- Two men or two women in your life. Right. So Simcha is asking a famous question with regard to Tchiesa Mesim and so on. If we start considering those possibilities, so what happens if a woman marries, marries and the husband dies and she remarries or divorce, cases like that, then Tchiesa Mesim comes, who are they going to be married to? That's a uh, difficult question, which I'm not going to get into tonight. But nevertheless, this is the holding of the, it's a good question, but this is the holding of the Tashbats. Therefore, he says, He has to pay for her takrichim even a hundred times, whatever it takes. That he even has to pay for a matzeva, the post can say, and certainly has to pay for this. And furthermore, he says, even with regard to nishbeis, even with regard to a woman who was captured, not all post can agree to machlokas tanoim, and a machlokas we shown him how we paskin, whether he's the right to divorce her and wash his hands of her, that itself is a machlokas. But when it comes to kvura, he says, he went from 100 to 1,000, even 1,000 times, he says, no matter how many times it takes, it's his responsibility to make sure she's buried and stays buried, and whatever it takes in terms of expense and effort, it's all his responsibility. That is the psak of the Tashbats, and that is how most postkin paskin. There was an anthology of, of the Akronim about two centuries ago who quotes the Tashbats, but unfortunately misquotes it. He quotes the basically the Tashbats' correspondent and ascribes his view to the Tashbats and omits to mention that the Tashbats himself strongly disagrees. The Pesachet a better-known anthology, takes issue with this and says that's a misquote of the Tashbats. The Tashbats clearly says you have to bury her again and again. Afilu meyapamim, afilu elapamim we saw. And that is the, seems to be the consensus of the poskim that the obligation of the husband to bury her is not extinguished after one time. He has to bury her and bury her again, over and over, no matter how many times, until she actually stays buried. So in this case, I guess, the, the ultimately, the, the halachic consensus aligns with Max's intuition that, yes, the, the husband cannot just walk away from his dead wife after she's buried once, 
If she needs to be buried again, yes, it is the husband's obligation to bury her again. I want to turn now to the other question I mentioned earlier, and that is, as we've been saying in the Tashpats, there is an obligation of a husband to redeem his wife. Nishpes. Nishpes chayev leftosa. If a woman is captured, the husband is obligated to redeem her. Now, in the postgame, they discuss two types of cases of captured. There's captured by kidnappers, by bandits. There's captured by governments. Jail. Woman's in jail. She needs a legal defense. She needs bail. Stuff like that. We conceptually probably distinguish between these. We, we see these as being very different scenarios. Someone in trouble with the law who needs uh, lawyers and someone who's been captured by cutthroats who are going to torture and kill the person unless the ransom is paid. So socially, conceptually, they're very different scenarios. Halacha doesn't sharply distinguish between them. Uh, many of the posts can lived a while ago where the, where the bright line we would make today between legal uh, jailing and between bandits kidnapping was not quite so cut and dried, where, the, where the, the government was often just a bunch of bandits with more guns. Uh, thank God we live in a more civilized world today. But uh, so the postcom don't always clearly distinguish between governments who seize people and between bandits who seize people. Both of those situations were seen as problems that had to be resolved. People who were who were interested in the in the well-being of the victim would spend money to redeem him. The person himself would spend money to to, to get himself out of trouble if he could. And uh, the the question of the legality of it doesn't really enter the doesn't really enter the equation. In general, the halacha says it is the husband's obligation to redeem his wife, regardless of whether it is uh, simple kidnapping or whether it is legal legal captivity, legal jail. In general, it does not matter. The husband's obligation applies regardless. The question we're going to discuss tonight is okay, but does it matter whether it's her fault or not? Again, regardless of whether the jailing is legal or illegal or kidnapping, we're discussing a different question. Do we distinguish between whether it's her fault or not? Whether she's an innocent victim, she was simply walking down the street and a bunch of guys jumped out of a car and threw her in and drove off, or whether it's her fault. She did something, she did something criminal, she did something reckless, which resulted in her captivity. That's the question that we're going to discuss tonight. So... In the, in the Shales of Chuvas Mail to Dhaka, Rabiona Lansofer, one of the great postkim of several centuries ago, he discusses a case, the following, following case. There was a woman, a widow, she had been married to Shimon, Shimon died, left her a widow. She married Ruvain. While she had been married to Shimon, she had been involved in business, she had been active in, in a business with her husband, she, and she apparently dealt in stolen goods. She apparently uh, received stolen goods, and, and that was part of her business activities. Now, nothing happened. She got away with it. Later, when she was married, when she eventually married Ruvain, someone, some other fellow, got in trouble with the law. He was seized by the government, and he turned on his former associates. He was caught with stolen property, and he confessed, and he turned on his former associates, and he said uh, he'd been, that he'd been in the business of stealing for 40 years, different types of uh, vessels, of tin, of copper. And he said that he was a thief and he sold these stolen goods to this woman. I don't know if he just ratted her out under torture because in exchange for a lighter sentence, just out of a sense of, I'll take everyone else down with me. Doesn't say, doesn't matter. But uh, the point is, 
he, uh, he ratted out his former associates, including at least this woman. And now, this, 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 this dealing of hers with stolen property, again, had occurred while she was married to her first husband. Now she was thrown in jail for dealing in stolen goods. And we have to get her out. That costs money. We have to spend lots of money. We have to pay people off. We have to pay bribes. Or well, we would, when, the, when, the, when the early posts can talk about getting someone out of jail, they typically talk about things like bribes and, uh, and so on. We talk about lawyers and bail. But for our purposes, it boils down to the same thing. Money is needed. Money is often needed in such circumstances. We need to pay money to get her out of jail. Whatever they, whatever they demand, we have to hire somebody, an expert, a lawyer, a negotiator. We have to hire some kind of uh, professional to deal with this. And all this costs money. So now there was an argument between Ruvain, her current husband, and between her sons from her first marriage, who should pay for this. Ruvain said, this happened due to her behavior while she was married to her first husband, when she was involved in his business. And uh, when her first husband died, she didn't get the, the business proceeds. So she got her ksuva. And the, the, the business itself, the assets, went to the heirs, to the, her sons from her first marriage. Not to me. So th- those assets are the business. Those should be the ones that should be, uh, that, that, that we, should, we should pay for her, her legal costs. We should pay for those out of the assets of her business and that, that she was engaged in. The Yarshim, the sons say, she, you're, the, you're her husband. You're the one responsible for redeeming her. her. It's true the problem may have started from what she did while she was married to the first husband, but the problem she's facing is right now when you're married to her, it's your responsibility. You should be the one to redeem her. So they were arguing who should pay for their, who should pay for this poor woman's, poor woman's release. The, her kids said, let her second husband pay for it. The husband said, let her kids pay for it. They were arguing who should pay for it. So Ruvain actually made two arguments. Ruvain's argument was, first of all, I think they should pay for it. And even if you say they're not responsible because they, were, they weren't involved, they just inherited the business, I don't want to pay for it either. Nobody should pay for it. Let the community pay for it. Let, uh, that, it's, it's not my responsibility, he said. So it's just because they're not paying for it, why is it my responsibility? Why should I pay for something that was a result of her, of her behavior when she was married to someone else? I wouldn't have married her, he said, had I known that she had this outstanding uh, legal liability had I known, I would never have married her. If I knew, people talk today about uh, a couple gets married, one, 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 of, the, one of the two parties doesn't, does, doesn't disclose student loans, and they find out about it afterwards, if they have $30,000 in loans, and they have tremendous shalom bias issues. Well, this couple, he's saying, had I known she was a criminal, had I known that she had uh, criminal or civil liability for, for, these, for, the, for the dealing in stolen goods, wouldn't have married her. So why should I pay? I'll pay for the rest of the community. Let the whole community pay for her, he says. Let them pay. Let the, let the whole family pay. Let them pay their share. Maybe I'll contribute my share as well. But it's not my responsibility as a husband in particular, he says. I did, he says it didn't happen while I was married to her. It, it's not something that happened during our marriage. I didn't even know about it at the time of the marriage. I wouldn't have married her had I known. So why should I pay for it? So this was the argument, uh, this was the argument between her sons from her first marriage and her husband. So the first half of the Miltzedakah deals with the question of whether the sons have to pay for it. And that's a question having to do with shutfas, with business in general. If, uh, if a business, if partners in a business engage in criminal behavior and profit from it, and then one of them winds up facing legal liability, does he have the right to demand that his partners cover him? So that's a, that's a question. We're not going to get into that. Uh, we're not going to get into that part of the question now. But our interest here is in the second part of the chub. Let's discuss whether the husband, the second husband, has any liability. So he says, 
If it's true, he says, that it was indeed her criminal behavior while she was married to the first husband that caused her current legal woes, if she was fully aware that the property was stolen, and she was uh, utterly reckless in doing this, she engaged in criminal conduct, then, and, and she knew or she should have known what the consequences could be. Why? He says, Everyone knows that the government is quite strict about this. They say, That's a Talmudic expression. It means that sometimes the actual criminal is not even the one who's the, the biggest problem. The biggest problem is the enablers, those who deal in stolen goods, those, those who help the thief unload a stolen property. We've spoken about this in the past, how Chazal prohibit, uh, prohibit uh, facilitating Geneva even after the fact by, by acting as a fence, by, 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 by telling the guy that crime pays, by, by buying it from him. So the, the, the governments also in Europe were quite strict about this. Not just thieves were, were, were considered uh, terrible criminals, even those who dealt in stolen goods, receivers of stolen goods, were also uh, severely punished. And she knew that, she should have known that, she did know that. Therefore, he says, even if this crime had happened while he was married to the, while she was married to the second husband, even if she did engage in the behavior during the second marriage, Ruvain, the second husband, said it, it happened before I was married to her. But says the Miltidaka, even had it happened before he was married to her, would, while he was married to her, he would still have a strong argument that he is not on the hook. Because it's her fault. She did it. I'm not responsible for what she, what she chooses to do recklessly. She can come to me with a demand that I take care of her if the recklessness is her own fault. He says, no such thing. He says, when Chazal said that if she is nishpeis chayev luftosa, that's only stam shivya, that's only by default, where it's not her fault, she's an onus, which is ordinary case of shivya. If she's pasha benafsha, if she was reckless, we blame the victim in this case, we say it's the victim's fault, and she cannot demand the husband redeem her. As to why, he doesn't just say because that's his notion of fair. He gives a, a curious reason for this. He gives a, a, he gives a, a somewhat uh, convoluted reason for this. He says, if we would allow a woman to demand that her husband redeem her, even when she's reckless, she would actually be incentivized to be reckless if she had a grudge against the husband. Anytime she uh, is angry at her husband, they get into an argument, she'll, she'll go and engineer things that she'll get in trouble with the law and that she'll be captured and that she'll trigger a major expense against him, and that'll be her way of uh, maliciously hurting him. We find Chazal Rechoshish for that in certain cases. So therefore, he says, if it's true that she bought these things, the Pshia, recklessly knowing they were stolen, then the husband is not obligated to redeem her. The Chiyav the of Chazal does not apply because, because it's her fault. Now, when one could challenge this. One could say, I mean, most women wouldn't do this, even if they don't like their husband, to say they would risk jail for themselves just to cause their husband expensive legal bills. You, you, have, to be pretty, uh, you have to be pretty twisted and pretty, pretty irrationally angry at someone to say, I'm going to go to jail, a European jail of several hundred years ago. It was not a, I don't think they were giving you three squares and cable television for, uh, just because you want to take revenge on your husband because, because in a fit of pique you want, to, you want to revenge it. It doesn't sound like the most... Uh, Realistic hashash, but this is what the Milzadaka says based on the Gemara. This is a significant concern that we can't empower women to uh, trigger bills like this against their husbands. Therefore, if it is her fault, if if there is pshia, certainly if it's mazid, but if there's pshia and recklessness on her part, she knew or she should have known what the consequences could be if she got caught. Again, you can argue that every thief thinks he's going to get away with it. That's why they engage in crime. 
So you can argue that she thought she would be okay, but nevertheless, a criminal, knowing, knowing the, the, the consequences of crime, the wages of sin, knows or should know that crime doesn't pay, and therefore she's considered reckless for doing this, and therefore, he says, she would not have the right to demand that the husband redeem her, even if the crime had, even if the crimes had occurred during the marriage, certainly not if they occurred before the marriage. Rabbi, how different is that from an argument of saying that I, I'm marrying you, and, and, but I'm not responsible for pre-existing conditions, kind of a, our, our, our contemporary terminology for, uh, for insurance. So yep. if, you buy, if, you, if you marry somebody, especially somebody who's been married before, they have all, they have all kind of history, medical, financial, reputational. You have to do your due diligence to figure out whether you, you buy this package or not. You're not buying... So that's, that's a very so that's a very interesting question. We're going to see also in the other acronym we're going to quote. We're going to see that the that they, that they do make an analogy between medical between medical care and redeeming her. So you, but but they don't discuss this question. This point he makes about the pre-existing condition is is a, is a relatively is a relatively uh, it's not the main point that they argue about. You're raising a very a very interesting question. That forget the question of if, whether it's her fault or not. What about the other argument, that it's a pre-existing condition? He can say, I never would have married you had I known X. So halacha is full of discussions of mumim. When we say caveat emptor, when we say he's assumed to have done due diligence, when we don't say that, the halachas are actually complicated. But you want to know this type of argument that he could say, I wouldn't have married her had I known X, if that's a valid argument. Again, in, in the part of the tshuva we quote, he doesn't really engage that argument. But if that's a valid argument, how would that apply to medical care? Could he say... If it turns out you have a medical condition that you had that wasn't disclosed, in certain cases that could even be grounds for, uh, for annulling the whole marriage. But even if it's not, you're saying, can he at least say, I don't want to be responsible for any medical conditions that you had, undisclosed medical conditions that you had at the time of the marriage. I wouldn't have married you had I known that you had this, uh, that, 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 I'm, that I'm opening myself to all this liability for this undisclosed medical condition. An interesting question. I would have to give that further thought. And it's definitely an interesting question. So this is the tshuva of the... Medical issues. There are other issues. The people are made up of all kinds of histories, not just the medical part, which you, 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 you're kind of interested in. Everything else a person is. That's why they, people are expected to do some due diligence before they, they marry. That's true, but, but the Allah also says that sometimes a person simply... simply Not all information is available. Some information is simply not going to be... Uh, not available, and sometimes that can be grounds for, for claims of, of fraud. Of, uh, is, that, uh, is that in Ketubah? I mean, is that, is that, is that halachic uh, uh, history on that? I mean, is that how, how they bask it? That if you haven't disclosed A, B, C, D, E, then you don't have, you, you don't have really a valid, valid Ketubah? It's, it's complicated. Oh, okay. there, 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 are, there are cases in which a, in which a latent, uh, undisclosed... Uh, undisclosed condition can be grounds for uh, avo- annulling, annulling, annulling a whole marriage, or even certainly voiding a tshuva. Rav, Rav, Rav Moshe Feinstein had a, has a famous tshuva about a man and woman got married. I think in his case, the marriage was never even consummated, and shortly after the marriage, uh, she, she learned that he had been, that he was a homosexual. I think, and that he couldn't really uh, have a relationship with a woman. I think in that case, he actually allowed. He actually did annul the marriage. He said that. Such a defect is so great, and a, 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 a normal, a normal heterosexual woman would not uh, not be willing to marry someone like that. And it's 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 an undisclosed uh, severe defect. 
that's grounds for, uh, for avoiding a marriage. I, it, it's complicated. We have the post are very reluctant to say that, to, to allow a woman to remarry without a get. Is, uh, we almost never say that, but there are cases in which we do. The, the Talmud is full of cases about mumim. The, the surgiv mumim is very complicated. The cases where we assume he did know, cases where he assume, we assume he didn't know, cases where the, the, the mum is readily visible to an outsider, cases where it's not visible, cases where he has uh, intermediaries or go-betweens who, who were able to vouch for, her, for the absence of mumim. But in general, a mum is a real thing. I mean, we, we don't always say, there is no general assumption in halacha, not in Avon Ezer, nor in Chash and Mishpat, that a buyer, or a husband in this case, is always assumed to have done the maximal possible due diligence. And in many cases, we say that if, if there was an undisclosed defect, that is grounds for, uh, for uh, absolving yourself of your obligations. So, yeah, so that, 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 that's a very, a very complex and a major topic of uh, both in Evan Ezra and Chosh Mish, but that, 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 that is a major complicated body of halakhic literature. Yes. So the, that's a true of the Milter He says that that in a case where it's her fault, even if, even if it's her fault because of things she did during the marriage, certainly before, the husband is going to be not obligated to get her out of jail. Now the base mayor, the base mayor has, has a position, he seems to take the opposite position. He writes in his Sefer Base Mayor, which is a commentary on Shulchan Aruch, but he quotes a letter. He says, when he was the Rav in the city of Mezrich, he said, when he was the Rav there, he says he found a letter from Dayanim, Mumchim, and Gaonim, the basin of Frankfurt Domain, uh, a celebrated Jewish city. He says it was a letter addressed to his predecessor on a halachic matter. Apparently, they, his predecessor had consulted these distinguished Dayanim in Frankfurt about a, about, a, about a certain matter, and he found a letter, a tshuva, a letter written from these Dayanim to his predecessor in which he quotes one small excerpt. We don't have the whole context and exactly what happened here, but in this brief excerpt that he quotes, he says that the, these Dayanim in Frankfurt took a position very similar to the Mil Tzedakah, that if a woman is captured because she stole not just dealt in stolen goods, she stole herself. The husband is not obligated to redeem her, because when we say that the husband is obligated to redeem a woman, that's only if she's captured through no fault of her own. But when she caused it, when it's due to her actions, because she stole, then there is no obligation of a husband to redeem her. Says the base mayor, even though these Dayanim in Frankfurt are Gedolei Yisrael, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're distinguished Gedolei Torah, and they were adamant, they, they were firm, unequivocal about their position. Nevertheless, says the base mayor, I am not convinced. He says, I, I don't know that this is right. It is true, he says, in general, that when, again, he, he refers to a case in Choshen Mishpat where business associates, where in certain cases we say that, uh, that we, obligate, we obligate people, not just husbands and wives, we obligate people of a community, people who are, who are enmeshed in some, uh, in some legal tangle, we force some of them to cover the cost of others, he says. Again, that, that's when it's a simple question of, uh, of cost. Who should bear the cost? So, so in certain cases we say, even though generally, the, even though there might be an obligation to cover other people's costs, if I kind of, that people who are embroiled in the same affair have to shoulder the cost equally, that's, uh, but not if it's one person's fault. If it's one person's fault, the Ramah says in Shulchan Aruch, that person has to pay his own cost. Nobody, can, nobody should be forced to cover the cost of someone who got himself in trouble. However, that's just a question where it's a simple financial question. Who's going to pay for it? 
But here he says, we find that, uh, that, that one of the reasons, the reason that Chazal said she should be redeemed, it was so important to get the husband to redeem her, is a concern, we're worried that if she stays among the Goyim, she'll assimilate, she'll give up her Jewishness, she'll shmad, that uh, it, it's not just a question of redeeming her from her captivity, we don't want her to, uh, to, to lose her Jewishness entirely, so since that's the concern, it's not about you know, her rights, so to speak. It's more about uh, a concern for a Jewish soul that, that she not be, be assimilated among the non-Jews. So what does it matter if it's her fault or not? She, she's still a Jewish person. She's still a Bas Yisrael. We still have to keep her from being assimilated among the non-Jews. Then he makes the example of health, he says, medical care. What would you say about medical care, he says? If, let's say, she, she, she made poor, what we call today, poor choices. She ate uh, unhealthy foods and got herself sick. He says, are you going to say, the husband can say, I don't, want to, I don't want to pay for your medical care. It's your fault. Are we really going to, are we really going to take the blame the victim attitude and say that if it's, uh, are, we, are we really going to say that, that, if it's, that, that if it's her fault that she got sick, um, that, 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 that he doesn't have to redeem her? Of course she does. Of course he does, she says. He takes for granted, we're not going to tell somebody that you don't deserve medical care because it's your fault that you got sick. Incidentally, the Pitzchei Tshuva, the great anthology on, we quoted earlier on, on, on Chashem Mishpat and Ebenezer, he says, Bechmeyer takes for granted that he doesn't have to pay for her medical care if it's her fault that she got sick. Actually, he says, there are Rishonim who say that, uh, that, that actually, that, 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 that is indeed the halacha, that if she caused herself to get sick, if she, I don't know, if she was a heavy smoker and, and, and came down with a smoking-related disease, assuming you can conclusively link it to the smoking, he wouldn't have to pay for it. The Shita Mekubezis brings the Ritva that it said that if, it's, if she was reckless and got herself sick, he doesn't have to pay for her, pay for her cost. Again, we, 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 we can argue how far to take this. Let's say she didn't exercise uh, four hours a week. Let's say she, uh, you know, there are all kinds of things she can do. So the, the question is, how far do you go? How far do you say the doctors have endless, you know, the health industry has endless advice for everyone, so, so everyone ignores some of it. The question is, how far do you go with this? But the, this is a basic machlokas, the, the shita, the ritva says that, if it's a, that there is such a thing that, that we do sometimes blame the victim. If it's the person's fault for getting sick, we do not obligate the husband to redeem her. But Mayer takes for granted that that is uh, self-evidently absurd. He said, of course, the husband has to pay for her care, even if it's her fault that she got sick. Furthermore, he says, the reason the Chachamim made this takana that the husband has to redeem her when she's captured, because she doesn't have money, because in general she doesn't have money, her assets all go to the husband. Therefore, he says, it makes sense that, 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 that the Tibur, to, to avoid the Tibur having to uh, take care of her, they said, let the husband take care of her. They, they wanted to assign responsibility so people shouldn't become wards of the state. Therefore, it says, it, it follows that any time a Pnuya, a single woman, would otherwise be a ward of the state, would be Mutelas el a woman who has a husband, the husband's responsible, since he takes for granted, when it comes to the Chiv of the Tzibur, of course, even if it's her fault, the Tzibur has, uh, has to take care of her. Therefore, he says, it, it, stands to reason that the, it stands to reason that when she's married, even if it's her fault, the husband still has to take care of her. So everyone seems to agree that the general Chiv of the Tzibur to take care of people, to redeem people, applies even if, it, even if it's his fault. Even the male tzedakah who says that the husband doesn't have to redeem her, he seems to agree that the, that the Tiber would. He just says that 
he just said, he himself agrees that the Gemara seems to say, even if someone deliberately sold himself to non-Jews, we still have to redeem him, even though he himself did it. He wasn't just reckless, he did it himself. We still have to redeem him to save him from, the, from, from harm. It just, the chiv of the husband, the Miltadaka says, doesn't apply in a case where it's her fault. Beismeyer says, actually, yes, it does. Beismeyer says that the chiv of the husband as well, it is exactly analogous to the chiv of the tibur. Anytime the tibur would have to do it, the husband has to do it as well. So everyone seems to agree that when a person gets himself in trouble, the tzibur still has to redeem him. The question is whether the husband has to redeem his wife, the special chiv of the husband to redeem his wife, whether that applies when it's her fault, she got herself into trouble through her own reckless actions. Miltzedakah says no, for the interesting argument that otherwise she'll be able to have power over him. Anytime she gets angry at him, she'll get herself in trouble and cause him to have to foot the legal fees. Beismeyer says yes, that the, 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 over, the overriding concern here is that she, that she does not become nitma ben hagayim. We don't want her to become lost and assimilated among the non-Jews by not being redeemed. Therefore, it doesn't matter whether it's her fault or not. The same thing applies to medical care. It doesn't matter whether it's her fault or not. We have to, the husband has to redeem her, regardless of whether he can blame her or not. Now, it's interesting. Periodically, we see these news articles or advertisements about uh, teenagers in Israel who were allegedly duped and manipulated by, uh, by, um, by the Fagans of the world to go, uh, to go smuggle drugs into countries with draconian drug smuggling laws, and the kid gets picked up for, for a suitcase full of drugs, and then they have heartfelt appeals to redeem this poor teenager, this innocent and naive teenager who didn't know what he was carrying, and so on. And people have very strong opinions always about this kind of thing, about whether there is a mitzvah to redeem such kids, there's no reason to redeem such kids. The point is, everyone seems to agree that even if it's someone's own fault that he gets himself into trouble, there is actually a mitzvah to redeem them. The, again, the question is, what do we do to make sure we don't enable such behavior? That's a good question, and beyond the scope of tonight's talk. But the, there is, in general, a mitzvah to redeem people, even if it's their own fault that they got into trouble. The machlokas we're discussing tonight is specifically about the chiv of the husband, to redeem his wife, that we have a major machlokas. The, the Dayanim of Frankfurt and the Mil said they thought it was Pashut. They, they argued that the chiv to redeem a spouse, the wife, is only if it's not the spouse's fault. If it's the spouse's fault, then there is no obligation on the husband to redeem her. And, and the, the Pesachitshuva brings the Shittim Kubetes, a similar thing about Rafua. If it's the woman's fault that she behaved recklessly and caused her, brought about her own medical condition, Similarly, the husband has no obligation to, uh, to, to, to foot that bill. On the other hand, the base mayor himself says, and no, absolutely, he absolutely does, both in the case of medical costs and in the case of, uh, and in the case of, of, of Pidyon, of redeeming her from captivity. It absolutely is his responsibility. He says, even if it's her fault, it doesn't matter. The, the overriding concern is to get her out of her trouble, get her out of her sickness, get her out of the, the danger of uh, assimilating among the non-Jews. And just as if she would be single, it would be the community's obligation to take care of her if she can't afford it herself, so too, if she's married, it is the husband's obligation to take care of that, even though it doesn't seem entirely fair, it's her own fault, doesn't matter, he's her husband, she's in danger, according to the base mayor, it is his responsibility to take care of her, to, 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 to save her from danger, but again, the base mayor, the Mil and the Diana Frankfurt said, not like that, they said that as long as it's her fault, the husband has no obligation to help her. Once again, I'll reiterate that this is all a question of the din. It's not always the right thing to do to, be, uh, to, to insist on din. Lo karva Yerushalayim, 
Yerushalayim was destroyed, the Gemara says, because Hamid did name al because they insisted on following the letter of the law. There's such a thing as decency, and of Hakar Satov to a spouse, and of loyalty, that might say you should do it anyway, even if you're not strictly Mechoyev. But in terms of the, the strict halachic question of, is the husband Mechoyev, if it's her fault, that is a major Machlok Sachronim. The Shito Mekubetzes, B'Shem the Ritva, in the case of medical costs, and the Mil and the Dianim of Frankfurt, all in the case of Pidyon of, from Shivya, all say the husband has no responsibility. Big Mayer says even if her fault, even if it is her fault, the husband is never the, the husband is nevertheless responsible. Thank you all for listening. Have a very good night. Yes, yes, yes. Just a quick question um, from the perspective of the Dianim of Frankfurt, uh, the Mil Tzedakah. So it, it's not always going to be an obvious case that it's her fault. So to what extent is the husband required to spend his own money to find out if it's his wife's responsibility? That's, a, that's an interesting question. It's certainly in the case of medical costs, we all understand, we can quote you statistically that, that certain things are risk factors, but it, it, it's very hard in general to draw a straight line between any given lifestyle choice and any given and a, and a medical condition. You can find some cases where, you know, where, where a person you know, drinks himself into a into a coma or has liver damage or something where, where it's clear that it was the drinking that did it, but you, you can have a case where someone you know, drives drunk or something gets into an accident where it's pretty clear that alcohol was a factor. You can have cases like that, but in many, many real-world cases, even you know, in cancers and, and heart disease and a heavy smoker, you can argue whether it's how, how can you prove this is what courts have to do all the time. They, the courts have to, juries are, are tasked with trying to establish whether there was or was not a clear correlation between uh, medical device negligence or drug manufacturer negligence and some given condition, and uh, the, the juries have to assimilate statistics and expert witnesses, expensive expert witnesses uh, paid for by both sides and so on. So obviously, in the, in, obviously it can be quite a difficult uh, it can be quite a difficult task to ascertain conclusively difficult, i.e. expensive task, both expensive and inconclusive sometimes task to ascertain whether, uh, whether a given uh, measure of recklessness and irresponsibility was, was a significant factor in a medical condition. So the question Dr. Saipas is asking is, who, who's, who is the burden of proof on? Whose responsibility? This is a, a classic question in Chosh Mishpat and Ebenezer in general, if, the, if one party has an obligation to another. And he has the affirmative, and he has an affirmative defense that it's um, that that my my counter argument is it's your fault, or you know, I, I have a I have a defense like that. Who has the burden of proof to establish the? Is, we say he has to prove that it is her fault, or that she has to prove that it's not her fault. That is a good question. In, in general, the halachas of who's considered the muksuk are very tricky. On the one hand, she's the one who wants his money, so you, you might think that he's the muksuk. On the other hand, he has a clear and well-defined chiyuv to redeem her. Or to, or to pay for her care, and he's trying to, uh, he's trying to put forth a, an affirmative defense. Maybe the burden of proof is on him. It's a good question. I would, I would have to think about that further. I, I, I don't have a ready answer off the, off the, off the top of my head. It's a, these are very tricky questions. I don't have a, a clear answer as to how we would uh, allocate the burden of proof. That's a, that's a good question. Oh, thank you. Those, at least to know what the considerations are is very helpful. Thank you.